Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to go ahead and call this budget session to order. Mr. Clerk, if you would read any preliminary announcements that you need to make. On activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exits to the left or right front of the council chamber or the east or west stairwell outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use elevators or escalators. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in front of the Department of Social Service building at 900 East Marshall Street. Citizens and employees should assist visually and hearing impaired visitors with exiting the building. And Mr. President, for the record, all members of Council are in attendance this afternoon with the exception of Councillor Addison, Councillor Robertson, Councillor Lynch, Councilwoman Trammell. You do have a quorum. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Um, the purpose of today's budget work session is to receive an overview of the mayor's proposed budget. Uh, our CAO, Mr. Lincoln Saunders, uh, shall come at this time to share um, on revenue and general fund. Good afternoon, President Jones, uh, members of council. Um, Lincoln Saunders, Chief Administrative Officer for the city. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to come before you today to add a little bit more uh, detail and context to uh, what you heard from the mayor in his budget presentation uh, just last Monday. Um, today, we're proposing to start with an overview of um, the revenue forecast for the FY24 fiscal year, uh, and then we would go to the city's operating budget, and I believe we also have the capital budget for presentation after that. So I'll go ahead and jump in. Okay, building for the future. As a city, we wanna be proactive in building for our future. We want to preserve jobs, preserve services, and minimize tax and fee increases. And our goal is to build a stronger Richmond and improve quality of life for all citizens. In this budget, we are investing, we are investing to improve the quality of life for all citizens by both understanding uh, how we need to govern in a post-COVID world, making progress in key areas um, or particularly in a climate of economic uncertainty and planning for a prosperous future. Terrible at multitasking, so I'm getting some help. Um, all right, so how does Richmond compare to its neighbors in being able to raise revenue? To answer this question, we are going to look at Virginia's Fiscal Stress Index. The Fiscal Stress Index is published by the Commission on Local Government and illustrates a locality's ability to generate additional local revenues from its current tax base relative to the rest of the Commonwealth. The index is used to determine how to distribute state aid to 95 counties and 38 cities in the Commonwealth. The three components are revenue capacity per capita, the theoretical ability of a locality to raise revenue, revenue effort, and median household income. It helps us to understand how our ability to generate revenue compares to neighboring localities. As you can see on this chart, uh, Richmond is the 25th most fiscally stressed municipality in Virginia out of 133 cities and counties. You can also see where we compare to a, a um, peer city like Norfolk 
as well as to some of our surrounding jurisdictions of Chesterfield and Henrico um, that many times we are asked to compare ourselves to. The city's fiscal stress ranking went from high stress in FY 2019 and now down to above average stress in FY 20. The average stress value for Virginia cities was significantly greater than for Virginia counties. The percentage of cities experiencing above average or high stress was 87%, with the corresponding percentage for counties was 42%. The index shows that cities experience a higher financial burden and higher stress than our uh, counties par partners, and all localities experiencing high fiscal stress in the analysis were cities. Our neighboring counties, Chesterfield and Rico Hanover, rank in the below average and low categories of fiscal stress. So to kind of put a fine point on it, it's part of what makes it a challenge to compare our city tax real estate tax rate to neighboring localities, which experience lower fiscal stress and their abilities to generate revenue. So how does the economic climate impact our forecasting of revenues? We have to consider the broader economic landscape and what's to come when budgeting for revenues. We have to look to economic indicators such as labor force participation, such as employment and unemployment statistics, prices and inflation trends, and ask ourselves, how will a recession affect the Richmond region? How will an economic downturn impact city revenues and financial decisions? And so to answer these questions, we reviewed the economic indicators and their impact in the Richmond region um, with economists who could provide both the national, state, and local perspectives. <laughs> I'm sure many of you are asking just as we are, is a recession coming and what will it mean for the city? Economists suggest that we are in our uncharted territory. Some indicators point to recession, while others show rebounding and slight growth. For example, the Richmond area labor force participation grew in, in 2022. Employment grew 1.3% over the calendar year, and our unemployment rate went from 3.2% to 2.9%. At the same time, prices in the southern U.S., including Virginia, grew 7% in 2022, which was higher for U.S. cities overall. Economies suggest that at the national level, a recession may look mild in comparison to 2008. And as of the end of last year, service providers and businesses remain cautious about adding to payrolls and taking on additional expenses until revenues are comfortably outpacing costs. When budgeting revenues, we have many factors to consider as we continue navigating an unpredictable economic climate. Richmond's population continues to increase. Employee recruiting and retention is extremely competitive. We have a tight labor market and higher expectations from employees in regards to competition for salary, benefits, and incentives. We also have inflationary increases that continue in all areas, but especially in energy, contracts, uh, IT, vehicles, insurance, goods and services, and construction costs. And so in FY24, we must be wise with the allocation of revenues and resources. Now getting to the numbers. Overall, uh, we're pr proposing a 948.9 million general fund revenue uh, budget for FY 2024. This represents an overall 10.6% increase in our recurring revenue growth. This excludes uh, transfers and one-time uh, expenditures that were in the FY24, uh, excuse me, FY20, the one-time expenditures were in the FY23 budget uh, and the transfers are reflected in the FY24 budget. 
2024 real estate tax revenue accounts for nearly 35% of the growth. Uh, and we, in this budget, assumed a projection of a 7.7% uh, growth in real estate over uh, FY23. 19.1% of that growth of the 35% came from the 2023 real estate assessment growth um, that we've been discussing for the last several months. We also are projecting that sales and use revenues are projected to grow um, significantly over FY 2023. The total proposed FY 2024 budget, however, is $3 billion. This includes revenues by each fund type. Um, the largest growth is in the city's capital improvement program, uh, which is at 120, 20, 122% uh, above FY23's capital plan. This is due to 217.5 million um, in funds for school construction and renovation projects, as well as over $50 million in capital improvements. The 21.5% increase in RPS funding includes our general fund contributions, which have an additional 21.1 million over the FY23 funding level. The largest revenue source in the general fund is property taxes at 56% of total revenues. Other local taxes such as admissions, meals and lodging, sales and use and utilities make up 20% of revenues. The third largest source of revenue is from the state at 10%. I believe many of you are familiar with our general fund revenue timeline. Our real and personal prop property taxes are levied on a calendar year basis. Real estate taxes are levied in January and June, and personal property taxes are levied in June as well. Business license renewal, business returns, and business personal property filings are due in March, and admission, lodging, and meals taxes are filed monthly and are due by the 20th for the previous month's receipts. Real estate tax revenue is the largest source of revenue to the general fund. An assessment saw a 13.5% increase in FY 2023. We expect an increase in revenue again in FY 24, um, and the total revenue from real estate is estimated to be at 438 million, a growth of 16% from the FY 2023 adopted budget of 377 million. Uh, I would add though that this includes both uh, values growing from uh, new properties coming online, as well as higher values on existing properties. ALL, ALM revenues are also expected to grow, with admissions being the highest growth from FY 2023's adopted budget due to a continued return to businesses and reopenings followed the, following the pandemic. We expect meals and lodging to see around 20% growth. Personal property taxes are expected to maintain flat revenues from FY 2023, and sales and use consumer utilities and business license revenues are expected to see some growth this year. In closing, the FY 2024 revenue budget um, reflects continued growth opportunity for the city, despite economic unpredictability. This year's revenue budget trends emphasize uh, and underscore our focus on developing sound fiscal policy as we invest in our future and build a stronger Richmond together. Uh, Mr. President, uh, that concludes our presentation on the revenue budget. We'd be glad to take questions now or save them for after the second presentation. No, sir, if we could uh, uh, take them in part. So since we're on, since we're on with you right now, we will. 
And so, colleagues, if you will just, we, we can ask questions whenever, but again, we want to deal with the presentation we just had right now. So, all you have to do is light up and we will uh, acknowledge you. Uh, Councilmember Ann Francis Lambert. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. CAO, for your presentation. Appreciate you. Um, just a couple things. Um, on slide 10, you have 2024 real estate tax revenue accounts for 35% of the growth. Since we have changed how we aligned our um, budget with assessments, um, and we have a new schedule now, um, how are you guys predicting that revenue now that we've kind of changed our schedule? Can you just address how we're looking at that? So, uh, Councilwoman, I would say that the the update in the latest conversations with the assessor's office, as well as the finance administration team, um, is that uh, we are going to hold on changing the assessment schedule at least until after um, the assessor is able to update their software, which they're currently going through the process of now. So, for FY24, it is not impacting that change in schedule is not impacting revenues. Um, we are operating under the same schedule we've had previously, despite acknowledging some of the challenges we have with. Um, projecting this early in the assessments calendar, um, but we have been working very closely with the assessor, and um, I think uh, I won't speak for him, but my understanding is he's more comfortable with us moving forward with that change after he has an opportunity to upgrade his software. Okay, I just have a um, second question to just um, with um, you had indicated on the graph on um, slide 12 that the revenue from the Commonwealth is 10%. Um, what does that look like? What is that revenue that we're getting from the Commonwealth? I would um, start from that expectation. A lot of that money is state transportation funding. Okay. Um, so when we receive smart scale funding for um, construction projects you might see in our capital budget, um, particularly in the CAP budget, it, it outlines that. But you also have things like cost sharing on um, social services or our constitutional offices. So state revenues support many of the um, services that are administered locally, but um, are supported by state funding, like our constitutional offices, the sheriff's office, um, you know, and the, the jail operations, as well as social services. Um, is, I could get you a more complete list. Is schools funding in that the LCI formula? That's not. Um, Let me ask for some. Right, um, he's it's saying the, no. <laughs> the state funding from schools is counted in the overall um, general fund. General funds for, uh, and then the total allocation for RPS. Okay, thank you. Ms. Jordan. Thank you. Would this be the best time to ask about rates from the utilities? Do we have a separate utility presentation plan? We we can absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm happy to answer questions now, um, but I just wanted to defer or mention if we were going to have a separate presentation from utilities, um, but we'd be glad to discuss it now. Okay, thanks. So obviously, um, we are having a presentation in governmental operations. I'm not sure if it's coming back to the full body, but for those listening in, obviously, one of the things that residents notice is that we are having increases in these different rate categories from wastewater, stormwater, gas. And what I was wondering, because I couldn't discern it from the budget books, but uh, I had requested a new master plan for the gas works. And I was wondering if that is in the budget or not. 
I, I'm going to need to get back to you on the master plan okay. question because I think that is something um, we're discussing internally how that aligns with the, some of the additional planning um, that is currently ongoing. But as I've mentioned to you before, I, I support and agree. I think it's a, I don't know that it's an individual line item, but um, something we may be looking to do within DPU's budget. But if I could get back to you on that. Overall, I can respond to the the comments about utility rates um, at a at a very high level. And again, we can give a much more fleshed out breakdown um, at a later budget work session if, if so desired. Um, but as we, you know, for example, are proposing an 8% uh, general wage increase for city general employees, when we apply that to the utility space and they provide a similar wage increase, that is captured in the service fund and therefore rates must be adjusted in order to cover the increasing cost of labor um, and compensation for the workers in gas and uh, utilities. I do believe rising energy costs are a portion of that as well. Um, which as we are seeing from both our partners at Dominion as well as uh, across the country, um, fuel costs, et cetera, are, are increasing as well. But for much of the utilities where labor is a big portion of their operating budget, um, when we adjust wages for general employees and we do a parallel move in the utility side, um, rates are adjusted accordingly to make sure that we break even in our utilities. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just looking at the slide where it's you know something like 300 million in CIP investments for all these different utilities, and I just would hope that there would be you know recognizable amount towards helping people with home weatherization, trans, um, transitioning to electrical appliances, things that for our most you know rate burdened residents and businesses would have a meaningful impact on their lives. I mean, I just got an email from someone who was trying to have the gas turned off to their home during the summer so that they wouldn't have to pay the gas bill. Um, because it was that significant for them. So just look forward to further information. Thank you. When we get to the capital budget a little bit later, I go into some detail about what's proposed for the utilities capital investments. Um, but again, we can certainly dive into those questions in more detail. Ms. Nye. Thank you, President Jones. Thank you for the presentation question about the 7.7 uh, .7 real estate tax revenue growth. Where did you guys, how did you come up with that percent increase? Would you say that it's a combination of information from the assessor as far as what they are seeing so far in the housing market, as well as um, the economic forecasting uh, that we are doing in parallel with the data coming out of the assessor's office. Okay. So, so you're using the economist that you are consulting or? We are still, high, yes, it would be more the consulting economist because we are still in the process of bring, onboarding a city economist that would be charged with doing this sort of forecasting internally for the city going forward. Okay. And I, at one point I had um, asked the city attorney for just some feedback on how that how we come up with that number because historically really it's been the assessor who's set the number and so i feel this year is the first time we're making this change and it's pretty significant and i personally just don't want to be building a budget that is more generous than what we end up with revenue wise 
You so understand I, what I'm saying? I, I believe so. And I would just respond in the the keeping in mind that in the past year, um, we've had a similar situation where, you know, based on where the assessor was in February and March, before he completes his, you know, land book throughout the rest of that fiscal year, we ended up in a position where we were five and at five plus percent over in the projections or in the in the actuals versus what the assessor was able to demonstrate or predict in the early part of the year. And I think this goes back to what the assessor has said, which is it's not really his role to be providing projections. His his job is to do assessments. Um, so looking at the economic outlook and forecasts, um, I would personally say I think it is the responsibility of budget and the city organization to, to put our best thinking on and come up with a conservative estimate, but still one that is, um, these are projections. Uh, and so we are doing our best to project based on what we're seeing in the market and the economy, um, housing markets across the country, as well as broader in Virginia, to give you a, um, what we think will be an accurate estimate, but um, is probably uh, a different number than what the assessor would say if we had, if we put them on the spot today and said, what can you promise as far as, you know, how much has the land book in two months of doing work changed? Um, okay. I just want though for us to acknowledge, I mean, this is a different process than we've used in the six budgets that I've done so far on city council. And I also just want to check with the city attorney to make sure like, Maybe there is no defined process in the charter for this, but I, I just want to make sure since it is different. Thank you. Yes, just to clarify, if you could. Um, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but um, the question is, regarding projected revenues in the but when we set the budget so in the past we've always used a real estate number real estate tax number that we've gotten through the assessor so now administration saying they're weaving that number in with feedback from their budget office and um, economic forecast and so on and so forth so can you check to see if there's anything in the charter that defines how, what that process is? And if we have to use the previous process or if this works moving forward. Um, yes, um, Tabrika Rents. Um, yes, certainly I will check. I, I will say um, I don't believe that there is any particular um, prescription on the process itself that the council utilizes. If, if I could just add one more clarifying detail is is that it is normally the director of finance um, who is, as, as we recall in the past, when the land book value changed between introduction and adoption, um, in the past, it's been, you know, the director of finance who verifies whether those revenues can and should be included in the budget. And so that's, I think, how we're viewing it on our side as well. Councilmember Lynch. And I apologize for being late. You already um, covered this. Historically, so this, so we've had a third, on average, a 
increase in real estate and assessed value for the last several years. So really, this is just a 3%. One more time. So assuming that we've had an average of 13% growth, I think that was our last two years of assessed value has increased 13%. Is that correct? I, I do know that's the percent that increased in FY23 um, during the, the full fiscal year uh, or that we've seen when the land book closed at the end of the past year. Um, I don't believe the year before that was quite as high as that, but yes, you are you are right. I believe that we've had double digit uh, years of assessment of assessed value increases over the last two years. And again, that is a combination of new growth coming online along with other values increasing. Okay, I was just trying to put that number into context. So it's really a difference of about three percent from where we've gone. I, I would where we've we been last year. Three or five five percent, more or less, from what we saw last year. But I think it essentially indicates a cooling in the market, but not expecting a full recession or um, withdrawal. We know we have a lot of construction currently underway um, that will be coming aligned in the current year. Um, and we're still seeing in the housing market that limited um, housing stock, meaning fewer homes be going out for sale. Um, I think folks, some some are like their 3% mortgage and are not going out to sell. So that compressed um, volume of housing stock is likely to keep prices high and or, or keep prices either stable or continue to climb at a more modest rate. Okay. So I just want to I, I just want to make sure that we have this on the record um, that that the city assessor during this process uh, can only and will only um, project a number that he's that that he feels comfortable with and that is a four to five percent uh, growth uh, in in. Know, in in what he sees from a real estate standpoint, and so, excuse me, moving from that to the economist is is a departure from the way we've done, at least at this point at this juncture. And so, what does that mean as we look at the budget? What does that mean as we look at revenue, and and how we move forward in that? And so. At some point, I think we've got to get to a point where council administration, where we understand how we're going to do this moving forward, uh, because ultimately that that's a huge number. You know, if we're talking about even even three points on, you know, three percent might sound small, might sound small, but when you extrapolate that over the amount of dollars that we're talking about, it, it's a huge jump. It, it it is for the process that we have to uh, undertake. And so having an understanding of re revenue projections is going to be important in how we get there. And I, I can appreciate the administration's desire uh, to have uh, the process change, but I want to make sure that what if we're off? You know, what if those revenue projections are off? What's at risk, right? Uh, and at what point in time do we know revenues uh, are potentially soft uh, because again, once the once the once once it's baked and once we're down the road, we're down the road, right? And so, so what's at risk? I don't know if you want to comment towards that before I get to my second question, uh, Mr. Saunders. And when, if you could, 
elevate your mic some yeah. because I, I'm I'm hearing that folk on teams uh, can't hear you as clearly. And I know you're a little taller than the average presenter. So, so uh, responding to that, I do. Um, I think it's a it's an important conversation about how, um, particularly in our largest revenue source, we are um, we are projecting those revenues. Again, it is a departure, but it also is also um, I would say it's it's the assessor has been put in an uncomfortable position in the past of projecting revenues, and then we all express frustration when the revenues are different from what was he was able to certify in March and April versus what we see in September and October. Um, so we're doing our best to hone in using expertise to come up with a what we think is going to be closer to true position um, versus what he may have just from two months of data uh, in an assessment calendar. And so, again, I would. And I've also heard from council members the frustration in seeing large surpluses, knowing that we have needs throughout our communities, et cetera, and feeling that those revenues should have been accounted for in the budget and therefore either able to be directed towards priority needs or otherwise. And so I think the combined pressures on both sides, um, we have no incentive to uh, goose the numbers, but we also don't want to be but so be so conservative that we end up with, you know, the surplus is carrying in the tens of millions that frustrate our community as well as council and administration. Well, the, um, there's a third side to that. It's the taxpayer that would like to see correct. a reduction in what they pay for, <laughs> what they pay in the real estate tax as well. So it's not just council administration. We have uh, those factors as well as we go out. And I think that's what Ms. Jordan was uh, alluding to with utility and utility cost and uh, the increase this this particular this particular cycle. I have a question as others uh, may choose to ask questions from a revenue standpoint. I see in the pilot where uh, FY21 actual, FY22 actual, three million in 21, uh, 3.3 million in revenue in FY21. Um, 1 million FY22 actual. And then we're looking at an adopted or adopted 3.6 FY23 and then FY24 3.6. What took place in FY22 from a pilot standpoint? One, secondly, I've asked this before uh, of the administration to find out what that total number for pilot is. Mm-hmm as far as what we should be receiving and then what we are actually receiving, because again, we've talked about this before that that number is anywhere from 30 million to 53 million. Right. And so for me, that that's an important number, but again, to see a revenue difference, a Delta of roughly two and a half million, just trying to understand that. Um, I will have to get back to you on the answer for what took place in FY 21. Obviously it's COVID the COVID budget year, but it's also, I'm not necessarily, not necessarily sure why um, the projection would have, or the actual collections from the state would have been uh, decreased in that. In yeah, that they, they still had, regardless Property. of COVID or not, they still yeah. had a tax liability. Um, mm-hmm. And then how, when can council expect to see a number? And I, again, if that's on our assessor, if that's on the administration, 
what is the number we should be collecting from pilot? And then what's the agreed upon payment that we are receiving? So I would say that just um, it is a, a difficult calculation because we have to get with the assessor and make sure we map all the state properties appropriately. And there's um, questions of whether do you include the VCU properties or and you know community college properties or are we limited to state office buildings, et cetera. Um, I do think that's something we can turn around um, in the next uh, one to two weeks um, so we can get you an estimate. I remember doing this analysis, I want to say three years ago, and the number was north of 30 million in what the difference in in what state pilot would be if they paid full freight on property values that uh, are under state control in the state, uh, in the city. Um, but that value would only have gone up since then. But the calculation we can also provide in in summary of how the state arrives at the, or how we arrive at the 3.6 number um, based on the agreed upon pilot with the state. And by agreed upon is what they agree to give us because there's no- Yeah, I, I want a better negotiator if we agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, but, but again, if, if we can have that within uh, the next five to seven business days, that would be great. Because again, if, if we're talking about 30 million, 30 million over 10 years, right? That, that, that's, that's, that's a large amount of revenue. And then if we're only agreeing or we've negotiated 3.6 on a $30 million ticket, we need to sit back down and renegotiate that and find out why we got to that uh, uh, that number. And then is anyone in council allowed in or represented during that negotiation period? Because there, who sits down at the table and, and negotiates there, that? There is no negotiation, Mr. President. Like the, the state set a pilot rate when they, uh, I want to say, and probably the majority of our pilot payments are on um, properties that have come online, you know, in recent decades rather than um, prior to, because the, the reality is the state sets the formula for what they are contributing to the city for the pilot. There is no negotiating table. We haven't been um, able to get to a table with the state where they were uh, seriously considering raising Richmond's pilot. It's been on our, I think, legislative agenda every year. Um, we continue to push. I've been part of meetings with legislators where we've asked them to seriously consider this and we get a nice pat on the shoulder and, you know, of course, you know, we'll continue the conversation, but. And, and, and again, it's a very interesting conversation in that they're running a surplus, right? Annually. Um, and that number, especially if it's 30 million, and we're only getting 3.6, we need to recalculate that or really seriously, you know, challenge our legislators to go to bat for uh, the capital of the Commonwealth. Because those are dollars, as we get complaints about littering and all these other services, um, those are dollars, because we already know what 30 million does to a budget. We know what 3 million does to a budget. We'll sit back and argue over 300,000. Um, and so, if we could get that number, Mr. CAO, I would truly appreciate it. Yes, sir. Councilmember Lynch. Um, this is a, a really great discussion and one that um, 
Lincoln is correct. We've broached with our um, friends across the street. Um, I will say two, two things from a strategic perspective. One, I think it'd be helpful for us to have um, some type of an estimate of the maintenance costs of the building. So if you were to take the um, indirect costs that DPW, public safety, and DPU spends on our state assets, I think it'd be a healthy number to present to um, appropriations and Senate finance members. Um, I do in my conversations with some of our um, with some of those members on money committees, there is an understanding that we are incurring indirect costs on maintenance. And so I think think that's 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 a, a lever that we have there. Um, I think the other opportunity that we have as a city and a, and a, a being a capital city is that um, the administration is currently looking at its assets and whether or not to roll some of these buildings off of its um um, off of its catalog, there is an opportunity with two, at least two state agency buildings that we have. I would recommend that we either um, write a letter or, um, or or partner with um, RCAO to go to the administration and 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 encourage them to get those assets off of their rolls and back onto the city tax dollar. I mean, those are two really strong opportunities there that I would recommend that we take to the General Assembly next year and 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 in the interim of this summer. I'd add that to the conversation. We have other questions, Ms. Robinson. I know you're you're here. Thank you. It's good to see everyone. And and let me state this just for the record: Ms. Trammell is attending uh, a funeral of, of a constituent, and so that's why she's not here this this afternoon. Mr. President, with your permission, we'll transition to the operating budget. Just, just one last question. Uh, can you tell us a little more about uh, transfers and one-time expenditures and their impact on the revenue? Absolutely. Um, I actually, I believe, believe I have that in um, the first couple slides of this presentation, Mr. President. If you'd like for me to just kind of address it when. In that at that point, it's in the in the first three or four slides of the next presentation of this presentation. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Uh, again, thank you for the opportunity to present. Um, last year, when uh, the mayor and administration presented the budget, uh, we said we were resetting the foundation. As we still continue to hit that reset, uh, we must also look forward to the next evolution of our city. So this year's budget is focused on building for the future. Throughout this budget, you will see investments in children, neighborhoods, and our employees. As we still grapple with uh, what we will look like as a city in the aftermath of um, the COVID-19 pandemic, we must recognize that it is forever changed how we operate. Most organizations like ours are trying to find our balance, find their balance, and move forward. That's why the proposed budget focuses us on building for the future that we want to see. With the proposed budget, we are adopting a perspective in how we view our resources. 
In the past, we most focused on just the general fund total. Uh, however, we've been remiss in not looking at the budget as a whole. We are not a small city. We are a $3.0 billion corporation with the general fund making up roughly 32% of that business. For FY24, we are proposing that we are still coming back strong. As I mentioned earlier, we are building our city and organization for the future. There is $110 million in new recurring revenue or new funding program for the next fiscal year. Most of this funding is being used to shore up gaps where, uh, in areas where we could not address previously. As you can see from the graph, the column on the left shows the transfers out and the non-discretionary expenditures make up a total of 59% of how this new funding is allocated. Uh, Mr. President, you asked uh, for details on what is included in the transfers out. Uh, I can share that the capital reserve, um, that is the capital maintenance funding that is uh, taken from the FY22 surplus and is now shown as a transfer out to the capital maintenance reserve, uh, I believe showing up in our in our capital budget as um, page of funding. School facilities assigned fund balance is also uh, counted in that transfers out. That number is at 15 million. Again, that's school facilities assigned fund balance and the RPS committed fund balance of 158,000. And then finally, um, we are transferring out the funds for uh, PDR um, that are tied to the House Bill 1966 funding that ties revenues in our building department back into uh, that department for investing in staff and uh, services. We also removed the one-time items from FY23 that again included uh, a, a portion of schools facilities assigned fund balance, the FY23 capital reserve, the DPU dividend, um, the percent for the arts funding, uh, committed fund balance for RPS, um, RPS's prior year surplus and the COVID-19 assigned fund balance. So all those items would have showed up last year in our budget as part of our total general fund, but they were one-time money. So we backed them out and then we add to that any one-time funds that are coming in this year. Um, once you account for that, that's how we get down from a, a larger revenue growth that you might see at over 12% to really 106 because that is what recurring revenues are growing at in the proposed FY24 budget. Mr. President, did that largely answer your question? Thank you. Um, all right, we'll move to the next slide. Okay, so when we are looking at the entire general fund budget, 23% of our general fund is dedicated to school's operating budget. Followed by public safety, including DEC and um, animal care and control, public safety accounts for 20% of our general fund operating budget. Uh, debt co comprises 14% uh, or you know, payments for debt service comprises 14% of our operating budget. Health and welfare at 9%, public works at 5%, community development at 2%, uh, recreational and cultural expenditures at 4%, general government at 6%, our constitutional offices are 7% of our general fund budget, and our non-departmental funding is at 9%. And just keep in mind that with that non-departmental includes a lot of our government partnerships like the Ambulance Authority and, and similar um, RBHA, um, the health district, many of our um, quasi-governmental partners uh, in work. 
Budget drivers that include essentially healthcare, retirement costs, and debt service account for 18% of um, the increase in expenditures in FY 2024. Of the $948 million general fund budget, $174 million, again, 18%, is dedicated to healthcare, retirement, and debt service. Uh, if I could take a moment to also mention um, OPEB. Two years ago, we made the hard decision to change healthcare offerings for the city of Richmond. And, to, and in so doing, bring down our other post-employment benefits liability, which in FY23, um, excuse me, the FY23 valuation shows that our measures have achieved our goal. Prior to FY23, our liability for OPEB was well over $100 million, which based on even our internal auditor's report would have suggested that we as a city needed to contribute 15 or more million dollars a year to funding that liability. That would have been cash funding that would not have been available for employee salaries, um, public safety pay plan implementation, and other needed uh, general fund expenditures. Um, by making the tough decisions and the tough choices, um, we've again been able to reduce that from over 120 million to now just 23 million. Uh, and so, very, very significant change that addressed a very major um, liability we were carrying for the city. It, it it would take a smarter person than me to explain how the policy change affects the, the unfunded liability, but um, just suffice it to say it had to do with what um, commitments were out there that the rating agencies and that when GASB changed the accounting procedures for how we had to account for those uh, liabilities, it created this hundred plus million dollar uh, liability based on how they were measuring um, you know what we were were committed to by uh, uh, making those adjustments in our policies we were able to significantly reduce that liability dr newville and then ms robertson thank you uh, just on the slide in terms of healthcare, especially relative to retiree. Is there some other document that has greater delineation uh, relative to health care for retirees and the implications, changes, et cetera? I think we'd be glad to provide that. I don't have it as part of today's presentation. Okay, I'd really like to get that. Yes, ma'am. Um, I've gotten inquiries about that and the increase, uh, especially for retirees. Council Robertson. So, yeah, as a follow up to that, um, if the policy change, which is great uh, to reduce that liability, uh, what I'd like to have a better appreciation as to what impact it has, not only on the retirees, but our employees as well, as it relates to what they're putting out. Uh, in costs for healthcare. So it actually, um, the the segment of the retiree population that the changes in our offerings um, impacted were those who retired before the age of 55. Previously, the city would offer retire, um, access to healthcare for particularly sworn employees. After retirement, uh, 
but it, there was no age restriction that said, you know, you could access city health care um, and essentially join our plan, um, paying full costs for that, not with any city subsidy of that plan like we do for our current employees. Um, so for those who retired before 55, theoretically, they were able to access that. And so the way the Gadsby, as I understand it, calculated is, is you build it in with the assumption that really any number of your uh, employees could retire before 55 and be carried on your insurance as a liability. Um, given the change in healthcare with the uh, availability of um, healthcare without pre-existing conditions, restraints, and often at a cheaper value price than what the city can provide um, for that healthcare if you're on our plan playing full freight, not without city subsidy um, or city support for that plan. The determination was was really that employees who had who were retired before the age of 55 had options available to them on the exchanges that were more cost competitive than what we were what we were able to provide. Um, so it was a shift from employees, and we ended up having some conversations with employees who had essentially submitted their retirement plan or entered the drop prior to the policy change who were going to be impacted. And I think we were able to 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 make the consideration for those who had essentially, you know, put their drop papers in prior to the policy change that if they were 54 years old or 51 years old, they'd still be able to access. But for those who have not yet set a retirement date, they will know this policy change before they elect to retire. Um, again, we are still uh, and we're also working you know, hand in hand with employees who have questions about healthcare, we do have a service that they can access to explore the exchanges and and get a sense of what rates would be um, uh, in the in the open market in the healthcare exchanges. Um, but it is a significant, it is a, a real policy shift that had a major impact on the on the unfunded liability. And I would say that I think that that. 15 million plus that we no longer have to put towards funding that liability in OPEB and investing it in our employees through compensation and benefits or the further adjustments we've made to reduce the cost of health care, particularly for those with family plans, um, has a much more positive impact on our employees' lives than continuing to offer access to our health care after retirement if you're younger than 55. Did that answer your question? Most of my answers. Mr. Addison. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, CEO Saunders, thank you for this uh, visual and breakdown of our kind of revenue and expenditure piece. Uh, I want to give a, a big kudos to page number five um, with the breakdown of a dollar because I know that a visual like this would be very impactful. It had, would it be included in a tax bill? for residents to understand where the breakdown of their dollars go because $940 million is hard for most people to comprehend. It's hard for me to comprehend, um, but a dollar in broken down into pennies um, is very useful to make sure people understand this is how we are spending your dollars. Um, so thank you for this visual. Let's build on that. Um, and I'd like to challenge you to think about ways we could show maybe some of the CIP projects paving big projects infrastructure that go outside of this to show two sides of the coin will let people know that while I might not see this dollar spent outside my house, it is being spent around the city 
Um, and I think that's important and impactful. And so um, that's my first point. My second point would be I would love to see um, ways in which we can grow our revenues and ways we can support, you know, these numbers being bigger for next year's needs um, and not just waiting for that report to come and looking at things proactively that we can do as a city. I know your efforts with planning to improve the permitting process is one big step, um, but I know there are more needed. And so for me, I'd love to see a conversation with this body to understand how we can support what it would mean to create revenue growth in our city for FY25 starting now. Am I taking your thunder or mm-hmm. you seem to be hiding a smile? So no, I'm, sure. I'm hiding a smile because I'm worried um, someone behind me is going to throw something at me because I, I made the same ask this morning about our bills and putting the dollar broken up on it. He did not pay me, by the way. I did not. And I didn't set him up. But um I, I do think that that is a great suggestion and one we um, will discuss internally how we can move forward with implementing because it is important for citizens to understand how their dollars are spent. Agreed. Thank you. The one thing I will do, I ask Chief of Staff to reach out. Um, that would be a great slide for us to have uh, or a JPEG or a sheet uh, so we can present that at uh, district meeting, um, social media. We'll overlay it with our own individual names take credit. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but again, that that that, that has, a, has a wonderful sheet uh, to Mr. Addison's point. Um, Mr. President, if I could respond to that just by bringing council members attention to a new document on your desk today, the budget in brief book that uh, while we wanted to present it to you today to see if there's any feedback and uh, just say, quite frankly, it's hot off the presses. So there may still be some um, editing we need to do or um, but I think for the most part, uh, this is meant to be a resource that council members could take to district meetings that we could provide in libraries for the public to get, you know, information on the city's budget um, and priorities. Uh, obviously, this is for the proposed FY24 budget. We would do a subsequent one with the adopted budget based on any changes that council agrees to um, or, or makes to the budget. But um, we do have the dollar broken down on, I believe, page four of this, um, but we could certainly provide it as a slide for, um, or a one sheeter if, if, if that's preferable, but did want to bring your attention to this. I'm, I'm very excited about the, the, what the team has done to pull this together and very appreciative to DCO Joy Hogg and her team for making this possible for us so that we can continue to make our budget more, um, constituent and citizen, um, accessible. Thank you. Um, Councillor Lynch and then, uh, Councillor Lambert. Um, and I echo um, Councilmember Addison's sentiments. We were talking about doing that with our um, this past year with our with our tax when our assessments went out. Um, the education bucket. Um, I see that you have. This is not inclusive of the um, obviously the the two hundred million that we're transferring over. No, I would just encourage it because for the public and especially in light of now schools building schools. Um, it's been it's been hard to explain when they look at this school budget, they are thinking that that's inclusive of school capital projects and buildings. And I think it's just important to add that, um, you know, really, that should be four hundred and twenty one and a half million um, because of the capital, because of the, the, the money that we were obviously giving them to fund school construction. So in all of our documents, if we can just see that reflected um, so that folks understand that the city is not only investing in their operating budget and increasing that by $21 million. We're also giving a whole, you know, living true to the promise on um, the facilities plan. 
So I think that would just be helpful if you can kind of add that in there. If you'd like me to continue, I have a few more slides, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, just, just one comment. Um, great, great um, pamphlet. Um, this is definitely helpful for us um, as we go out to the community. The only thing that I would suggest that you add is um, either like contact information or um, anything in regards to like if a if a citizen looks at this and they have questions, who do they call? Um, if they're going to call us on council, then I would suggest uh, just putting our email addresses or something just so you're going to have questions and people just need to know, well, who do I call to get response or just to have great some. So, yeah, just wanted to suggest that. But this is great. This we need more of this stuff, type of stuff. So we're working on it. Thank the you. capacity. Doing a good job. Yeah. All right. Um, if we could go back to slide seven. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Saunders. Yes. Vice President and I had a question. Sorry, I just wanted to get this in real quick because we were pausing on the whole OPEB thing. And I just wanted to say thank you to you and your team because when this liability came forward a couple years back, um, it was a huge issue. And I know that you guys got a small group of folks together and um, we're working with the actuary to get that number down. So that's huge and really makes a difference in our accounting. Thank you. Um, how much, so thank you. Um, how much are we putting into OPEB this year? 1.4 million. 1.4, okay. So I do believe we have that, you know, kind of planned as a recurring investment so that we, which is still above, I believe now with our new liability, our kind of required contribution. Um, so we'll be still playing catch up, but we don't have to quite catch up quite so far. Right, okay, thank you. Okay, so um, speaking now to some of the specific investments in the mayor's proposed budget, um, we have over three million in additional funding for engaging youth in communities, including one million for the positive youth development um, program work, which is community-based um, youth programming uh, through a partnership with Next Up RVA as the fiscal agent. We have over half a million dollars to support the Trauma Healing Response Network. Uh, 244,000 for the We Matter program, which uh, is working to um, support our youth, particularly those at high risk um, of gun violence, uh, as well as uh, over $1 million to support the implementation or, or expansion of parks and recs after school offerings, particularly uh, through kind of three um, full out of school time programs at three additional community centers. I'm remembering Powhatan, Randolph, and I believe the third is Southside um, Community Center. The team will, will correct me on that. Um, speaking of Richmond Public School support um, to Councilmember Lynch's questions earlier, um, as many of you are, are aware, or as everyone's aware, in Virginia funding for school support is a cost share between the state and the locality. Uh, the state uses the standards of quality model to fund schools, and the model uses enrollment, the local composite index, sales tax, and several other components to arrive at the funding levels. Once the state has determined the cost of education, they apply the cost share, and our share is known as the required local effort. Um, and this is also, you know, known as the local contribution or city share of this funding. Uh, Ms. Saunders, before we move on, just, yes, just 
I, I don't know if this is engaging youth in communities and or RPS or just a lot of the things that uh, my colleague in the fifth has been trying to work on as, as far as how we overlap with uh, RPS in meeting the needs of our youth. What do we do? Um, we, we had four students that were shot on Friday. What's our response to that from a budget standpoint? We talk about the, 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 the violence interrupters. What and just what are we doing? What are we doing to address that from a budgetary standpoint and emphases? And then how is that being acted out? Because is it just, hey, we're partnering with these particular groups? Um, we're going to kind of hold fast to what we did last year. And, and and I'll stop there with my comments and allow you to address that. And then I may have some follow up. Um, I would certainly, you know, would like to have some of our internal subject matter experts in this space be able to speak to uh, in more greater detail than I would be able to give you today. But I will say, if you go back and look at that $3 million in investment in engaging youth in communities, all of it has a connection into reducing uh, violence in our communities and particularly uh, with a with a connection into our youth. Um, the Positive Youth Development Fund is is focused on investing in community-based programs that provide kids with um, alternative programming um, that provides, again, that positive youth development and supporting them in their in their communities, not through one single program, but in supporting community-based models for that intervention. Um, Trauma Healing Response Network directly respond, speaks to uh, how we partner with, you know, particularly our um, health district partners and our and health and behavioral health partners in addressing trauma in the communities, uh, so that it, the cycle we can tr do our best to stop the cycle of violence in our communities. Um, the We Matter program is is as I mentioned, um, specifically targeting uh, youth who are have shown to be at risk of violence, either because violence has happened you know, either within their family or proximate to them through a sibling or another. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's my understanding that the young man who lost his life on Friday was one of our We Matter students. Um, and so I'm not going to say there's not, I mean, we are, we want to do more and, and continue to, to, to engage in these conversations with both with council, community leaders and otherwise. Um, uh, but could certainly also bring back kind of a, a broader presentation if you look at investments that we have, um, not just in We Matter, but in RBHA and RCHD more broadly. A lot of it does have a community health and community violence and prevention uh, framework associated with it, even if it's not, you know, limited to that one topic and how the line items described. Right, because these were these are a group of kids that were shooting a video, right? They chose to employ prop of a of, of a of a gun that happened to be live but even getting them involved in helping them create their own narrative of how to reduce violence i know dc is it's either dc or baltimore one of the cities up north um you know they have a basic challenge out to where it's a a video contest about not having gun violence or something i don't know but we we need to do something very substantive to begin to reduce, um, you know, our, I, I have not seen so many young people in, involved in violence. It, it, it's seen it with with older kids, uh, 
or I should say young adults, but the number of young people that we're seeing with guns in their hands and being impacted uh, by gun violence, um, I haven't seen that in my time on city council. And so thank you, uh, council member Lynch and then council member Trammell Lambert, then Dr. Newbill. We'll go in that order. Um, without spending a whole hour and a half because we could talking about this topic. Um, just three things I want to highlight for you all that our committee has been looking at. And certainly we've been working with the administration on, um, that we need, we need help from our school board. And this is why we need to have, you know, this meeting, um, the first of April with them because this is an issue that's bigger than any one body. Um, one truancy is not, um, the truancy program is, as you all know, um, ended in, in RPS, okay? And we have an epidemic of absenteeism and children and children and um, young adults in our high schools who are who are not in school. Um, and so if, if we don't think that this is not contributing to violence in our communities, we got to take a look in the mirror. And so we've got to come together with the school board and say, what are we doing to get kids in chairs? This is what this is the ADM is about. Two, you know, several weeks ago, the school board voted to take uh, absenteeism out of the hands of social workers. I think that that was an absolutely detrimental, knowing the cases that I've worked with recently, an absolutely detrimental um, decision um, that, you know, hopefully we can come together with them and, and, and say, how are we, how are our social workers supporting our families um, and our, as particular, particularly our at-risk um, youth? Three, partnerships. I mean, we had to do this, the city, the city, the Parks and Rec Department had to do an MOU with our school board to ensure a partnership so that we could use, they could use school sites. And they're still having challenges. We are still having challenges, not only with our own Parks and Rec Department, having partnerships to wrap our arms around youth, but with outside partners, partners like Broken Men Foundation, other nonprofits that will, will and have an impact on our at-risk, uh, at-promise youth. And so we've got to do a better job. Again, the schools are not responsible for fixing this problem, but they are the point of entry. And the city has the resources and is making and has the connections and the partnerships and, and so does the schools to wrap our arms around these families and kids. So we have to come together. I just wanted to flag those three things and why it's so salient for us to um, to come together on, you know, as we're having these budget discussions with the school board. Council Lambert. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And um, thank you to my colleague in the fifth. Um, when you asked that question, that was the first thing that came to my mind was truancy officers. We got to start having the uncomfortable conversations when it comes about the schools. Um, Truancy officers are important because they were the ones that actually went out and got the kids and brought them back into the schools. Um, the school is supposed to be the safe place for our youth, and they don't have access, let alone so many issues going on in the home. Um, so I just appreciate you stating that, um, my colleague, because that's exactly what I 
was going to reiterate. And also, you know, it is Social Worker Appreciation Month. And I think every school should have a full-time social worker in the schools. And right now, the social workers are on like a part-time schedule, which is ridiculous. Um, so the children do not have someone to go to to actually talk to in the schools if they're on part-time status. So I just wanted to reiterate what my colleague has stated, and that's kind of how we have to deal with it, is really have these uncomfortable conversations that we have prolonged for so long. So I stress again to our school board colleagues that we come together and really figure out some real plausible solutions to these crises that we're facing. Thank you. Councilor Trammell, did you drop out intentionally or, or by accident? Because if not, I'll recognize you at this point before I go to Dr. Newbill. Thank you, Mr. President. Yes, ma'am. Um, I know that those shootings happened in my district and over the weekend, and um, my heart goes out to those families. I know sometimes people want to be left alone because they're trying to get everything together. They're trying to wrap around how it happened. Why did it happen? Because there's so many unanswered questions. And I know that the chief did reach out to me and also the captain and the lieutenant in reference to the shootings this weekend. And um, so many people are saying, what are we doing to the people that are allowing these children to get these guns? I got a, I got a text earlier, and I just sent it to the um, captain earlier, about when they got guns, they got cars, that they're putting these guns in the cars for them to get the guns and leave the money in the car. So the captain's looking into that now at first precinct because that is that is so wrong. And then when the when it all goes before when the when the police officers arrest and all of that, they do all they arrest these people, they go to court, and then you get the judges that don't take it seriously like we are here today and like our police officers and and the mayor gets on TV and please, please, please put those guns down. You know, we got too many guns. The guns aren't the problems. Like so many people call me all weekend. It's the person that has that gun that pulled the trigger or like our children that do not know gun safety. So what do we do about, do we find the people? Do we give them more, you know, time in jail? If this, if this, hands out to be true that there could be some guns in these at these addresses and these cars that I was given that kind of and I'm so grateful that my people trust me enough to give me the information for me to forward it to the police chief and to the captain and this is just not in first it's going on all over the city so we need to do something about that and you're right you know we need to these children there are so many children in the in the convenience stores out on the street just not going to school anymore and then we don't have the authority to tell them to go to school. We don't have that authority to do that. So it's a bigger picture. And we all need, you know, school board needs to look at that at the top. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Ms. Trammell. Dr. Nabil. Thank you, uh, Mr. President, and certainly appreciate the comments from my colleagues. And I appreciate what you are projecting for um, the upcoming fiscal year. But to that point, it is for the upcoming fiscal year. And what I'm interested in as we sit on March 13th is what are we going to invest in this fiscal year? 
what additional resources, and some of them are dollars, but some of them are people to really pull together the kind of partnership that we're going to need to address this challenge before us, which certainly schools and uh, public safety professionals, but it's also community and uh, administration, et cetera. So I'm really interested in what we're going to do now. And I get that you may not have that answer, but in fairly short order to have some presentation of what table will be set, working in conjunction with our committees, work in conjunction with this body uh, so that we don't have. You get the point. Yes, ma'am. It's just unacceptable, the loss of life. And folks talk about school being safe place. Well, I'm not so sure that our kids think of that in that way. And we have to work on what is it that needs to be done? What are the uh, mental health behaviors? On and on. So um, I'm interested in what it is we're going to do now. Not this minute, but is your team comes back uh, because this is March 13. And the year is not over and we don't want to repeat. And I do thank you for the allocation. I think I said that because these are critical areas as well. But I, we're needing to deal with this today. Uh, uh, Councilmember Newbill, I will just say that um, many of the items that we've articulated as being quote unquote new investments in, in children and youth are either a continuation expansion of funding or um, putting into the general fund programs that we have been piloting with ARPA money for the last uh, year or more. And so work with the Positive Youth Development Fund started with ARPA funding, We Matter, um, et cetera. Clearly the, um, the situation calls for, for more and we will we'll continue to explore. Um, I know our Office of Children and Families, um, Violence Interrupters, Police Department, et cetera, have been talking all weekend um, about the, um, the situation and, and any and all avenues we can to continue to emphasize, as Councilmember Trammell said, um, about how we can keep guns out of the hands of our youth. Um, it is a frustrating situation when you have so little control over how guns get into our communities and what state laws um, do or don't regulate in terms of making guns quite just so easy to access for our youth um, or even in uh, the accountability for those who allow it goes. Much of this does tie into state law, um, but as far as our local response, it is about how we support uh, youth and their families and their guardians um in uh in our communities and and there's just a lot that we can and need to do mr robertson then mr addison then Ms. jordan or did you have a follow-up to that uh dr newbill it is yes ma'am um and so thank you mr saunders uh, i appreciate your um updating us in terms of the conversations that have been going on. What's gonna be critical is that we get everybody to the table who are having those conversations so we can have a really coordinated uh, approach and strategy to dealing with this. And so I'm looking forward to that uh, as soon as possible. We'll certainly follow up on that point. I uh, think we need to 
be able to to talk as a team with with a recommendation for how we would set that table and bring everyone to it. So let me come back with that. Thank you, uh, Council Robertson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, appreciate the comments. Um, and certainly the discussion as it relates to our partnership and strengthening our partnership with Richard Public Schools. Um, it would be it would be great to see. I know that we've significantly increased general funds as well as capital dollars with Richard Public Schools over the years. Um, I'm not sure that we always put that out in front of us, and I think that we should because I think that's important that we do that. Um, I do feel like um, we measure our success of that ed effectively educating our kids based on many factors, but one is certainly related to uh, accreditation of our schools, and that speaks volumes to a lot of other things that are happening in the process as the reason why the accreditation is not there, whether it's absenteeism, uh, and, and historically, how many kids enter into Richmond Public Schools and don't make it to graduation because they've dropped out? And over that period of time, I think we fail to recognize how many kids are dropping, not just not going to school, that are literally dropping out of school and what what provisions are made available for those for those dropouts um, and our youth investment i think is super uh and is is very meaningful and valuable but we also need to look at what age group are we making that investment when we refer to our children and our youth you know if we're not hitting that age group that gets you know 13 14 15 16 year olds and then we're not looking at those that are dropped out in those age groups that there's no jobs for them there's no other opportunities for them. Our park and rec services don't really target that age group as aggressively as we need to. So I think that it's important that we look at um, some matrix of how we are measuring the success of our investments to help us determine whether or not we are targeting the group of people that we need to target as a part of this process. I also think that, you know, when it comes to um, the guns. I know that is the person who pulls the trigger and not the gun itself. However, our policies as it relates to gun and gun regulations uh, significantly needs to be reevaluated. And I would ask um, Mr. Chair that council and the administration uh, focus real closely on putting together our legislative agenda collectively together, as well as what we are doing a much finer job with looking at the budget this year. Um, and that we really drill down in some of those real policies that we need to change. It's like you said about the pilot. I mean, I, it may not be negotiable, but I think that the argument needs to be greater, especially with the city, and I'm, I'm sure that the policy is, you know, pilot is across the state, but we're the only capital city. We're the only city that gets all the rioting, and we're the city that gets the additional kinds of activity because we are the capital. And so I think those arguments need to be made. And I'm only saying that to say, Mr. Chair, a legislative strategy for preparing our General Assembly 
uh, package this year, more combined and collectively um, with the administration, I think would be very meaningful and valuable to us as well. Um, one of the indicators that we use to determine whether or not a kid is going to get in trouble with the law is their reading scores. And one of the challenges I placed to the superintendent when he came in is that we don't want to ever see our third grade readers scores dropping. And they have, and they've dropped tremendously. And that's a factor that has been used by the state of Virginia for years to determine how many kids are going to end up in a jail bed by the time they're 15 or 16. Those are the same kids that drop out. And so when we look at our investment, if we're not targeting those, we, we must be, be clear that we are also targeting those age groups because that is the pathway, the gateway into a lot of the violence and the crime and loss of children's lives and children taking lives uh, in the process of what's happening in the city. So I would really ask that we, uh, we look at matrix that that measures our success, that we're achieving what we want to achieve where, and also the partnership with Rich and Public Schools and whatever we can do from that perspective. Lastly, Mr. Chair, when we look at the dollar, I like this little dollar because um, it does make sense for all of us that don't uh, deal in the billion dollars uh, in our accounts all the time. Um, but Parks and Rec has been saying to us for years that our disinvestment in Park and Rec directly contributes to what's going on. And whereas we do not have a lot, we are not the school board, and we are not rich in public schools, and they come under the auspices of the state government. When we look at our investments out of this dollar, four cents are recreation and parks. And when we look at where we place additional monies to help youth and not focus on our parking rec, our parking rec centers, we've got a lot in the city and they're pretty close to almost every neighborhood of some sort. Okay. Um, and we are expanding it tremendously. And I, I really would like for us to do some more critical analysis as it relates to this dollar and look at this four cent for parks and rec and also this two cents for community development. That's where the rubber meets the road at the community level. And I would really want to challenge us to think more about where we are putting the double numbers versus where we are putting these single pennies in, in this dollar and whether or not maybe it's time for us to rethink those priorities. If I can just briefly, you know, we did some analysis for budget introduction and looked at where parks and rec funding on the operating side was at the start of the mayor's term versus where it is today. Uh, and going off of memory, I want to say that number is is close to a 50% increase in, in operating dollars increase for parks and rec over the period. I, I think your point is very well taken that community investment in parks and rec, et cetera, is, is an area that needs continued emphasis. And I think we, you know, from a capital front, we're, we're making a lot of those investments that will have to be backed with operating dollars in future years as some of those assets come online. 
Um, so I, I believe I, I hear your your vision and, and point loud and clear and and agree. We've been incrementally growing Parks and Rec. We've added, you know, over a million dollars this year for, you know, programming, after school programming that doesn't exist today at three community centers to be stood up to serve um, our youth. Um, we do utilize partnerships for a lot of, you know, youth programming, but we can continue to um, uh to look at the balance between parks and rec operating versus partner operating. Um, one thing I'd like to mention, yes, sir. And I, I'm gonna stop you real quick because I know you have a lot of ground to cover. Um, Mr. Addison, Ms. Jordan, I want you to get your comments, then I'm gonna put you back on, on, yes, on, on, on path on track here, sir. Yes, ma'am. I was actually just gonna say, I'll save my question to the end. I think we've had a lot of discussion. Get back to the presentation. And I'm gonna put you back on track for your presentation, sir. All right, Thanks. and I'll I'll jump. I do think it's partially, it's responsive to some of the comments that um, have been made, uh, but it's worth noting that over the last 10 years, um, the average daily membership, which is a calculation that goes into how the state calculates share of funding um, has declined 16%, while combined state and local funding has increased 50% for the school system. Um, unfortunately, most of that decline happened, you know, between 2019 and 2020 to today. And um, RPS is currently projecting and the state is projecting ADM to be 19,158, which is 583 fewer students in the current fiscal year. Um, I know those who have experienced on the school board and others maybe have more context to add to that. But when you look at youth in our community, um, it doesn't feel like we're declining our youth population at that rate. So speaking of how we got to the methodology for funding schools uh, in the proposed budget, um, this year we, uh, whether it's a, a new philosophy or a tweak um, in how we propose the uh, school funding, um, we think it's important that we, you know, move towards a more consistent methodology for funding schools that takes the guesswork out of it for both RPS and for the city. Um, so this year we based our funding support on the growth in general fund recurring revenues um, and the growth of the general fund. So, you know, so that's our general fund growth, less the transfers out, those things that we said were one-time monies that are, are going out to, you know, the, the capital maintenance reserve from FY22 surplus funding, et cetera. Uh, applying that percentage, um, we've seen 10.6% growth in recurring revenues. Uh, so we increase RPS funding by the same percentage. And that came to a um, an investment of $21.1 million in incremental funding for RPS. Um, moving to the next slide, uh, local funding has almost doubled <clears throat> in the last 10 years. On this slide, we compared the growth of our local contribution uh, as well as the uh, growth in state support for RPS since 2015. It's a 10-year look back. And as you can see, the city support growth has outpaced the amount provided by the state significantly. Uh, over the last decade, our support for RPS has increased 70%, whereas the state has only increased 32%. Um, in Mayor Stoney's term specifically, uh, local funding for RPS has increased 46% compared to a state increase of 23%. Excuse me. 
the city provides um, three times more than the required local effort um, as set by the state. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the state requires a local contribution, it, the required local effort, uh, and this amount is based on the funding formula for the standards of quality as well as the incentive and lottery funded programs. For FY24, according to the state, the city's required local effort um, would be $89 million uh, for the standards of quality and an additional $30 million for the other programs for a total of 123. So to put it another way, we provide 164% above the required local effort for SOQ and 80% above the total program for um, the, the total program for required local effort. Next. Moving on to um, emergency responses and other city commitments. In 2023, uh, the city, um, with the support of City Council, commissioned an assessment of the Richmond Ambulance Authority, RAA. This assessment identified various methods to improve both efficiency and revenue collection at the Ambulance Authority. Primarily, the, the assessment encouraged us to look at sharing services and reducing costs through economies of scale, as well as billing rates for certain calls. As you may know that the city subsidy is intended to provide the gap financing for RAA for indigent residents who cannot pay their share of ambulance service costs. As such, what we bill third-party insurance, Medicare, Medicaid matters as far as how much that delta is for, for the city to cover. Um, and so those uh, payers, third-party insurance providers, Medicare, Medicaid should be maximized first. Um, not doing that maximized insurance reimbursement causes the taxpayers of Richmond to pay uh, for the services that the federal or private insurer payer could have provided for. We recognize that RAA may have budget needs this year based on inflationary costs, et cetera, um, and that you know we have we want to be able to assist with that. So we have set aside 1.4 million in a reserve for RAA that we would like to um, see released after we have a impact from REA on implementing the assessment rec recommendations, uh, including rate increases and other changes. Um, I had a good conversation with the director uh, last week at the budget rollout, and I think there's gonna be some opportunities uh, that he can bring to the board now that council has had a chance to hear the assessment overview from um, the Robert Bob group. Uh, and then we'll be able to, to move forward there as we move through the budget season. Moving to housing. Uh, this budget uh, directs over 21.4 million in housing services in FY 2024. As we have so often said, we remain committed to addressing the housing crisis. This means we means helping the unhoused and those who cannot find affordable housing because of uh, lack of supply. To continue our efforts in helping those uh, who are unhoused, we are proposing to dedicate 1.75 million for the operation of emergency shelter. We've also committed to a $10 million uh, GO bond to support our commitment of $10 million for affordable housing development. Uh, these will be taxable bonds, um, but this is, how we move the needle uh, above where we would be able to uh, do 
just limiting ourselves to a general fund allocation. Uh, we do have some additional analysis of the current funding formula um, by the prior introduced ordinance and how um, using a housing bond is allowing us to get to that $10 million commitment um, today and be able to meet it compared to what the abatement revenues would be over the next several years. And so we can provide that and provide more context and conversation about that. Um, we also intend to leverage these dollars with partners, um, both locally and nationally, and we look to um, create uh, matching and other leveraging opportunities with these housing funds. Leveraging the city dollars uh, will double and in some cases triple our ability to invest in affordable housing in our community. We also have $3 million in additional funding for our economic development partners, including the Greater Richmond Convention Center Authority, the Greater Richmond Transit Company, Richmond Regional Tourism, and Venture Richmond. Um, break those down a little bit. The Greca funding is tied to the increase in lodging um, taxes that we anticipate being collected in the, the next year. GRTC's uh, amendment meets our commitment to fund the uh, inflationary costs over um, the pre-CVTA funding levels uh, and Richmond Regional Tourism also is tied to our um, tourism related revenues and Venture Richmond. The increase is to uh, help with the further implementation of their expansion of service into uh, Manchester for clean and safe. Uh, this budget also makes a number of investments in our neighborhoods. Uh, RVA Green 2050 was the, is the city's equity-centered climate action and resilience planning initiative to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030, achieve net zero greenhouse emissions by 2050, and help the community adapt to Richmond's climate impacts of extreme heat, precipitation, and flooding. Um, so we have $440,000 dedicated to ensure that 50% of the city's electricity usage will be from renewable sources. Uh, we also have a increase of $800,000 uh, to invest in Richmond's uh, libraries to enable them to further expand hours, particularly Sunday hours at a number of additional libraries. Um, we have uh, investments in our solid waste vehicle fleet, uh, adding historical markers as well as neighborhood signage, um, which has been uh, championed recently uh, for communities that um, don't have as many resources to invest in um, the neighborhood signage that some communities have been able to over the past decades. Um, so we want to create equity in how we provide for placemaking and wayfinding within our neighborhoods and communities. We also have um, one area of uh, public works of maintenance that uh, has been a challenge to fund in the past because it is not an eligible expenditure under straight street maintenance funding or CBTA funding is uh, alleyways, particularly those that are asphalt alleyways. And so we've dedicated a, uh, a line item of 250,000 to repair uh, paved alleyways in a number of neighborhoods. All right, so we're moving to, I'll call it my, one of my favorite parts of the budget, which is what we're doing to support our employees and our workforce. Um, I guess I should say all parts of the budget are my favorite, but this one is uh, particularly exciting. Um, 
Last year, uh, council mayor administration made significant strides in addressing market, market competitiveness for sworn police and firefighters. Uh, this year, we are uh, continuing that uh, effort by funding not just the step that would be um, expected or, or committed to in the plan, but also adjusting the ranges for all these positions by 3% in order to try and keep up with inflation. Um, so even those who are at top, the top pay band at their 27th year or beyond would receive the 3% adjustment, um, whereas those who are, you know, for, you know, newer in their careers would receive both the step and um, the step will be adjusted 3% as well. We are also very excited that this year we are able to propose an 8% salary increase uh, across the board increase for our uh, general employees. While that is um, certainly the largest increase, uh, I think, in, in memory for city employees, um, or would be, um, I would put it in the context that last year, uh, council and administration were able to provide a 5% wage adjustment for employees. Uh, if we are able to receive your support for the 8%, um, that 13% total adjustment would be roughly equivalent to what inflation has been over the last two years as well. So while I, I would love to feel that this increase was necessary to get ahead, it is really necessary to keep up for the cost of living for our employees. Um, we're also proposing to raise the city's hourly minimum wage to $18 per hour, um, which is a significant improvement and, and expresses the city's commitment to a living wage. Um, and I believe the next council work session uh, has opportunities for me to, to go in further depth on um, employee compensation. So I believe, uh, so okay, so again, regarding strengthening our foundation, to accomplish everything we wanna do, um, we also need to make sure that our internal service departments, those are HR, budget, finance, IT, procurement are strong. Um, they are the backbone of the organization. I think of them more as the pillars who stand up the rest of, of the operations of what we do as a city to support our citizens. Um, they're often overlooked, historically understaffed, and under-resourced, particularly in areas like technology. Um, we can't be the city we want to be if we don't have them operating at their maximum um, and highest functioning levels. Um, Budget, human resources, finance, IT, procurement need additional staff and up-to-date technology um, to provide the level of service that other departments need and that we all expect. Um, so throughout the proposed budget for these departments, you'll see a strengthening effort for staffing and updates. That includes um, eight positions for procurement, uh, a net increase of seven and a half for human resources, as well as two apiece for finance and budget. We have also begun the process um, of enhanced centralization of city, uh, certain citywide functions such as HR and communications. Um, the question of centralization and decentralization is decades old. Uh, municipalities often go through periods of centralization and then decentralization. But when services are decentralized, um, if an organization doesn't keep up with the regular trainings, oversight and assessments, um, you can often end with a very fragmented and inconsistent process. And I think there are places where we have seen that in city operations. 
Um, so to make sure we are providing consistent messaging and citywide services, we're going to increase the oversight and training capacity for individuals who are physically placed within a department, but are resourced within um, a, the, the central function like HR. Um, we will bring these core services up to the level we need them to be and ensure that we always deliver consistent services. And lastly, uh, speaking to the need that was expressed earlier for enhanced coordination of our legislative advocacy for the city, uh, we are proposing to uh, establish a Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. This position would work with regional, state, and federal decision makers to advance our priorities, uh, coordinate for the promotion of legislation, um, et cetera. We recognize that collaboration with our colleagues at, at the regional, state, and federal levels is key to our success. And as the city grows and advances, we need subject matter expertise and a level of professionalism in legislative circles that we currently aren't able to provide. Um, the new office would have one full-time equivalent position, um, and it would serve as the liaison to government, non-governmental organizations, facilitate the communication of legislative priorities between key stakeholders in the city, and it would serve the dual role of advocating the priorities of administration and city council. With that, Mr. President, I believe um, open for any additional discussion on the general fund operating budget. Thank you, Ms. Saunders. We're going to go to uh, Councilor Lambert, then to Councilor Robert Roberts, then Kathleen, uh, Council Member Jordan. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, and I'm so glad to see the Office of Intergovernmental Relations because I was the Office of Intergovernmental Relations umpteen years ago. I'm not going to divulge my age. Um, but I just had a question on the slide number 13 when it comes to affordable housing. Um, everyone's talking about it. And um, one of the things in the news um, recently was the 2.5 million that was committed to uh, affordable housing. You know, our partners in the community risk pointed out that um, allocation had we committed that 2.5 million to affordable housing and then i see that the mayor put in 50 million over five five years um i thought we couldn't use arpa funds to fund the affordable housing trust fund is that correct just so uh it is correct we could not provide the 10 million that was allocated in the per year in the two years of ARPA funding directly to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. One of the limitations of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund is its ability to administer non-city dollars, which at that, which ARPA was technically federal dollars being passed through the city or being you know, utilized by the city. And so um, HCD was the one who, that, that department led the um, NOFAs and the award process, um, I believe in conversations with the trust fund, but it wasn't a direct supervisory role for the trust fund at that time. Okay. Um, I would say that, you know, in the city's allocation of $10 million to, uh, per year to provide for affordable housing, um, we are going to have to cover the debt service on that. And that is a debt service that's going to be increasing annually as we add a new 10 million and a new 10 million and a new 10 million on each year. Um, based on analysis um, conducted by the Office of Finance or um, by the DCAO, um, based on this, the current structure of the ordinance and given the fact that the city actually, we eliminated the abatement program 
three years ago now, um, et cetera. So we're coming to the point where we're not going to have new properties rolling off of the abatement program. And so we would hit a ceiling of about 5.2 million of roll off abatement funding for the affordable housing trust fund. So I think 10 is more than five. And we're, we're hoping that, um, by doing it through this mechanism, through bonds, we're going to be able to actually have better planning, better leverage. The private sector is going to know that our capital budget includes an annual 10 million allocation and they can plan accordingly to, you know, be in one of our funding cycles. Um, there's a lot that we need to do and we need to do it quickly. Mm-hmm. And the housing bond enables us to get, uh, investment in the market, uh, expeditiously. Okay. Thank you. And I just had one other follow-up question. Um, 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 oh, the supporting our employees. Um, I know there was discussion months ago about VRS and um, trying to move in that direction. Have we come to some type of solution on how we're going to address the current retirement system that we do have and how we're going to increase the, I guess, the benefit for the RSS system. Um, I didn't see that in here, but I just wanted to make sure it's, are we working towards a solution on that? We we are working towards a solution. Um, VRS has to complete the actuarial study of what it will require for the city to make the transition to VRS. And we are still waiting for them to complete that study. We've been in discussions with them for, feels like a year now um, and about, you know, a making sure we have the, they have the right framing parameters of what a city transition would look like. Um, but we are in some ways um, uh, we're kind of in a limbo waiting for their analysis to come back. And then we would be able to, to present that analysis to council and give you our recommendations for how we would move to implementation. Cause the concern I have is that that's an additional cost that's a huge price tag t- for us to go to VRS, which is like 50 million. Um, I thought there's something we can do with our current retirement system to kind of address that. Um, because do we want to incur another 50, another debt service of 50 million plus to go to a new retirement system when we have one already? That to me was a little confusing. I hopefully we can have a budget session on this or something to talk about retirement for. My My recommendation would be that we, do have that discussion once we have the analysis and the actual because okay. you know we we might have an estimate of what we think it is, um, but we really won't know till VRS tells us what they would require. Okay. Um, and then at that point we would be able to present the pros and cons of a transition or making that um, shift, uh, as well as the costs and how we would propose to pay for it, um, whether that's through some form of pension bond or otherwise to figure out how we get there, and then what the impact to the annual budget would be as far as how much cost would change for what we provide in um, retirement for employees. And so uh, it's hard to give you much context in that until we have the numbers in front of us. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Ms. Saunders. Uh, Councilor Robertson. Uh, I have just a couple of questions. One, as it relates to schools and how much the state ultimately uh, budget for schools, how much is students enrollment, how much that impact the decrease in the level of state funding? 
I'd say that's a significant impact because enrollment is one of the variables that they use in their calculation. They use the CPI, they use your enrollment, uh, et cetera. I would need to have the team run some analysis of how much, you know, a change in enrollment impacts the, the overall funding level. Okay. And so my follow-up question in relationship to that, the policy decision that you're proposing that we use so that there's a standard uh, policy as that the city will use based on increased revenues and the percentage increase that we would um, appropriate to schools as to whether or not we should consider enrollment as well as it relates to budget um, because, you know, the concern is that there's a probability that it, there, if the decrease in enrollment is due to population changes and we don't have kids there, that's one thing. Um, but uh, as a part of our formula that we will create based on our revenue, if our population is consistently re decreasing, um, I would ask that we would at least do some assessment as it relates to the importance of the population growth, because that not only impacts the operational cost to some to a large degree, but uh, it also impact our continue to build more schools and uh, underpopulated schools and decisions as it relates to how many kids are in every building and how much is costing us from that perspective. So we'd like to take that in consideration. And the slide number 13 on the bonds, the geo bonds, I know we've been talking about this for a long time. Um, I have not had the benefit and neither has the board that is appointed by council or by and the mayor to understand this new method that we are considering as it relates to affordable providing affordable housing. Um, the board is quite disappointed that the ordinance that we passed previously that others uh, make a lot of uh, comments in regards to, but the ordinance was originated uh, internally and adopted by council as it relates to establishing a dedicated source of revenue for the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. We have also asked that we rethink whether or not the Affordable Housing Advisory Board needs to be uh, rethought and whether or not there are a housing commission that have an opportunity to look at all of the funding sources that we use for housing to be considered. Um, we appreciate, I appreciate what we, I think, what we see in the budget for housing, but we have no understanding of how this is going to work, when any bonds would even be available. There's plenty of money out there, lending money out there to build affordable housing. I don't know that we have a crisis as it relates to money that is available for lending is very competitive and some of it when you're looking at the low-income tax credits it does pr provide for provisions that perhaps complicate us in what we are doing but not knowing what are going to be the terms and conditions of our bonds i'm not comfortable that i know what this means and um i'm not comfortable even more so not knowing what that means um, and not seeing any funding 
as we have not seen in the last two years, added to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which really is gap financing, which really closes the gap that the lending institution does not provide to make this kind of housing possible. So, Mr. Chair, I have some really, really concerns about um, the readiness and what this will really yield and when uh, is a new initiative. I have not gotten any explanation or anything, and we've been asking all year for explanation of what we're going to do as far as satisfying this $10 million to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. The board hasn't received any insight as to how this would operate and have not received any response to the board being rethought as a commission instead of just oversight. Because right now, the board serves no function if we don't appropriate any money, right? So um, this is a way to really eliminate the citizen engagement invo involved in oversight as it relates to what we're doing with affordable housing. So I really want uh, some really in-depth uh, explanation as it relates to that and would like to request that the council receive that information as well as the board be properly respected and addressed as it relates to this as well. Um, and lastly, um, a policy as it relates to uh, employees increase in pay. Um, for years, you know, we've had some departments that we always care about making sure that they get something. But for our general population of employees, they've been elected drastically. Uh, as we create policies for funding rich and public schools, which is their staff primarily, um, I would like for us to have a policy that support increases for our general population of our employees as well. And we could always do more than the policy, but at least our employees will be guaranteed a certain cost of living raise every year. And they can count on that being the policy of this board. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> we're going to go to Ms. Jordan and then we're going to take a 15 minute recess before we go to our CIP uh, presentation. Ms. Jordan. Thank you so much. I had sort of a general question and that and one that was more specific and most of mine I'll just send um, over separately because they're, they're smaller. But um, if we don't know when we're going to get the state budget for schools, like what is our backup plan for making sure that they are going to be able to address their needs should the house budget be adopted? I mean, are we adding any any buffer whatsoever? That's the first question. And then the second one is I noticed the realignment on strategic communications and civic engagement. And it looks like you guys have nine staff that are being pulled in from other departments so that they can be in one area, but then there's still a net addition of eight new. And I was wondering, um, one, makes me a little nervous to, to grow that big in one cycle with all our needs. I, I wanna say that might be let, let me get you a, a breakdown of that because I know we also have the community ambassadors and some other changes coming into community engagement. Okay, great. I'm looking at it's page 52. 
wondering if there has been discussions with our so, office about trying to, you know, better align all of our communication. Absolutely. Um, I do believe that the eight new positions are the ambassadors because we were previously funding the ambassador program with ARPA funding. So they're being moved into our general fund and it has the appearance of being new positions, but it's continuing the work that is ongoing in addition to some of the consolidation of, of other positions. Um, we are thrilled. I have had a number of conversations individually with council members. I know the Office of Engagement um, uh, Ms. Burks works with many of you individually on district issues or communications. We would be thrilled to have a conversation about how we strengthen our overall shared communication strategies and how we make sure that this um, team, be they, be they ambassadors or um, more on the public information side, uh, are a city resource for that communication, be it district issues, council issues, or citywide communications and otherwise. Thank you. Okay, thank you. With that, we are going to go on recess for 15 minutes. Uh, counselors, we do have food provided in the lounge, so we want to give everyone opportunity to take bio break as well, and we will reconvene in 15 minutes. Thank you. <clears throat>
and call all of my colleagues back to the dais. We are going to begin the second portion of uh, today's presentations. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that we have informal that starts at four in which we have to cover some uh, important items of business as well and so i do not want to appear to cut anyone off uh, or push presenters but i still will uh, ask that we come to order amen i had to throw that one in there <laughs> <laughs> to throw that one in there. All right, with that, Mr. Saunders, thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. And again, uh, uh, we'll jump in now with our FY24 to FY2028 Capital Improvement Plan Overview. Um, FY2024's proposed CIP totals $699.4 million. And the five-year plan totals $1.6 billion of investment in our community. The capital improvement plan is funded through general obligation or GO bonds, utility revenue bonds, cash, also referred to as pay-as-you-go, and federal, state, and regional transportation funds. This year's CIP emphasizes the importance of investing in community and neighborhood well-being while addressing maintenance and infrastructure needs. The CIP development process is a year-round cycle. It kicks off in August when submission begins, and in September, departments engage in funding and strategy discussions. Submissions are due from departments in October, and they present their submissions to our internal CIP task force in November. Deliberations begin in January, along with overall budget preparation for the upcoming fiscal year, when the CIP is finalized in February and presented to you in March. Um, alongside the operating budget, the CIP is adopted in May to take effect on July 1st. So um, just if you'll indulge me, let's talk a little bit about what a, what a capital improvement plan uh, provides. A capital improvement plan is used to strategically invest in and develop buildings and infrastructure throughout the city. The plan identifies and prioritizes needs based on an approved strategy, establishes the project and the scope, provides funding estimates and sources, and projects future operating and maintenance costs. We qualify a capital, uh, so what is a capital project specifically? We qualify a capital project as one that costs more than 100,000 and that the asset has a useful life beyond the debt instrument. So 20 year bonds, we want something that's gonna have a useful life beyond 20 years. And so that includes assets such as buildings and infrastructure. Um, we are proud to tout many of the recently completed capital projects, such as the Nine Mile Road reconstruction, which provided streetscape and revitalization amenities from I-64 to 25th Street. This included the design and phase construction of sidewalk and entrance repairs, curb ramps, crosswalk markings, street trees, pedestrian lighting, and a study for a roundabout at the intersection of Nine Mile Road and 31st Street. We're also excited about Franklin Street's new streetscape with bike lanes, cobblestone streets, decorative street lights, and new sidewalks as well as Cardinal Elementary now has uh, investments that have supported safe routes to school. The project installed sidewalks and ADA ramps on several neighborhood streets near the school, including Catalina Drive, Cranford Avenue, Kinsley Avenue, and Clarkson Road. I have a longer list, but for your uh, benefit, I'm going to um, just jump to the next slide. Uh, looking at FY 2024, um, this proposed CAP has 739.5 million 
uh, in the five-year proposed CIP. Uh, so again, 739.5 over five years. The largest share of this funding, as you can see from the pie chart above, is dedicated to education in school construction and renovation at 29% of total funding. It also includes funding for transportation infrastructure upgrades, capital maintenance and investments, and vehicles and equipment. With this year's CIP focus on our city's future, we are funding shared priorities through each of our investments. We want to improve our residents' quality of life, support public safety, enhance community well-being and economic development opportunities, and promote growth for children and families. We are dedicating over $114 million to major economic and cultural investments, including affordable housing, the enslaved African Heritage Campus, and parks improvements. $217.5 million will go to school construction and renovation to support the growth of our children and communities. And $263.8 million will support transportation improvements such as traffic signals, lighting, and complete streets, and upgrades that support public safety and community well-being. Most of our five-year projections, 71%, will be funded through general obligation bonds. 17% will be funded through federal and state funding, and 12% through other sources, including cash funding. We are increasing funding for education, vehicles and equipment, transportation, and capital investments. The 739.5 million general fund five-year CIP represents a growth of 17.9% over last year's adopted five-year CIP. The largest increase in funding is in our capital investments. FY 2024's new capital investments include uh, 10 million for affordable housing projects, 15 million to replace Fire Station 21, 10 million to build a uh, replacement first police precinct, 7 million uh, for parks improvements at uh, parks across our city, as well as 6 million to um, cover the funding gap to complete Southside Community Center. Yes, Mr. Amon. Or, sorry. Yes, yes, sir. I believe there, there is 15. There is 15 million in the capital budget to replace Fire Station 21 in this fiscal year. What's that? Nothing. But thank you, Lincoln. Thank yes. you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and continuing investments from prior years, including public art and uh, two million for the enslaved African Heritage Campus. Uh, the 58.7% increase in capital transportation funding over last year includes various streetscape upgrades, street lighting, um, maintenance, new street lighting, and complete street design and implementation. Uh, and as you, you all know, Complete Street has both a ADA and Vision Zero centric design. We have 217.5 million in school construction and renovation. We are supporting the quality of life of our residents by investing in our children and families with 217.5 million. Uh, that includes 200 million uh, for school construction to include the replacement of George Wythe High School, 15 million to rebuild Fox Elementary School, and two and a half million in capital maintenance uh, for schools throughout the city so they can do improvements on buildings and facilities, roof repairs, boilers, chillers, cooling towers, 
HVAC and electrical modifications. We also know and acknowledge that affordable housing needs have risen to critical levels. Uh, to address this immediate need for more affordable housing, we are taking action this year through proposing a $10 million uh, investment in FY 2024 and including 10 million in every year of the next five years for a total of 50 million in the five-year CIP. 50 million in taxable bonds is the most expedient and efficient way to address the immediate need for affordable housing solutions in our community. And I believe we'll be discussing that further in future work sessions. We also continue to provide funding in FY24 for the construction of the enslaved African Heritage Campus. The campus will recognize and memorialize the impact of trade in enslaved Africans that was centered in Chaco. The project uh, combines a memorial park and museum with other development opportunities to create equity. The FY proposed budget includes 2 million for archeological work and extensive community engagement on the design of the Heritage Campus. The project uh, also received or works is working in conjunction with the $11 million in grant funding from the Mellon Foundation to create an interpretive center at Main Street Station. This results in 23 million over five years uh, in the outlays. Uh, and I will say, I think that's 23 million on, in addition to the 11 million from Mellon in the five-year outlay for the development of the campus. Public safety, uh, Ms. Trammell, you get to hear me repeat it one more time. Uh, $15 million for the replacement of Fire Station 21, which is much needed, as well as $10 million for the replacement of per First uh, Police Precinct, which is also desperately needed. Public safety facility upgrades and improvements continue to be prioritized uh, elsewhere in the, this year's Capitals Maintenance Program, including uh, $620,000 for apron maintenance and fire protection at fire stations. 250,000 for HVAC replacement at the second police precinct and 250,000 for facility maintenance at the Richmond City Justice Center, such as upgrades to their chillers, as well as uh, camera and security access controls. FY24 is also the second year of fully funding fleet with cash from the general fund. This is a financial best practice and creates additional capacity in the CIP for long-term debt. Goes back to the principal. We shouldn't issue 20-year bonds for a vehicle that may last five. The city's fleet consists of approximately 2,100 vehicles and pieces of equipment. Uh, the 10 million in proposed FY24 for fleet replacement from Page and Go Cash funding will support um, purchase of four fire apparatus, 52 patrol vehicles, and nine uh, refuse trucks for solid waste. Prioritizing parks improvements uh, to enhance the city's green spaces is a top priority in our capital investment program, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention also a top priority that council members articulated in the council prioritization process over the last several weeks. Um, a new capital improvement project uh, is established in FY24 and sets aside $7 million for parks improvements, including Bryan Park, Fonticello Park, Humphrey Calder Community Center, the James River Park System, onboarding the five new parks uh, that were announced in 2020, uh, improvements to Smith-Peters Park, Westover Hills Community Center, and uh, new recreation um, installments at around Wickham Court. The Capital Maintenance Program also dedicates $3.2 million to, in funding to various parks improvements, including neighborhoods parks maintenance at over 869,000, improvements to lakes, aquatics, and fountains at, at 400,000, um, the Belle Isle Wedge Building at 200,000, uh, general parks maintenance uh, at 
750,000. We also, as I mentioned previously, have six million to complete the funding requirements for construction of uh, Southside Community Center, which we are excited to see move to completion. We are also prioritizing safety through our capital maintenance investments. This budget includes uh, $4.5 million in capital maintenance for maintenance and repairs of the city's flood wall and levee system. I don't think I have to emphasize too much how important that is. Uh, as well as $14.1 million in capital maintenance on various facilities, replacements, and upgrades. Um, these include sites such as the John Marshall Courts Building, the main library, City Hall, uh, roof repairs at various facilities, as well as an HVAC replacement for animal care and control. We are also committed in this budget to ensuring community well-being and accessibility through dedication of $21 million to Complete Trees projects. When we talk about Complete Trees, we refer to a transportation design that enables safe, convenient, and comfortable travel and access for all ages and abilities, regardless of their mode of transportation. Complete street improvements promote public right-of-way, traffic calming measures, pedestrian crossing improvements, sidewalks, ADA compliance, streets, alleys, traffic control devices, and resurfacing and paving. This year's 21 million is made up of 16 million in geo bonds and 5 million in CBTA funding. The project was first approved in FY 2022. <clears throat> Excuse me. and consists of former projects on the citywide traffic calming, pedestrian safety, crossing improvements, and sidewalk streets and alley improvements. FY 2024's non-general fund CIP totals $332.3 million. Priority areas will address the city's sewer systems with $97.7 million to combine sewer overflow and $61.4 million to sanitary sewers. The five-year non-general fund CIP stands at $902.9 million for utilities, projects, repairs, and enhancements. The combined sewer overflow project has $119.7 million in the five-year CIP for design, engineering, and construction of CSO conveyance facilities on the north and south sides of the James River. The projects will increase wet weather treatment capacity at the wastewater treatment plant, expansion of the Shaco retention basin, and other uh, CSO control projects. Sanitary sewer projects have $281.3 million in the five-year CIP to improve and upgrade sanitary sewers, extensions, and replacements. The project has been funded continuously over an extended period of time. Since 2005, the program has taken a more proactive role to rehabilitate sanitary sewers for an additional 50 to 100 years of life expectancy. New Gas Utilities has a total of 2.5 million in the five-year CIP for new gas main services and meters to serve the city and neighboring counties, Chesterfield, Hanover, and Henrico. It is estimated that 10,560 feet of new mains and 1,100 new services will be installed in FY 2024. Gas system replacement totals $102.6 million in the five-year CIP and will replace gas mains, services, meters, and regulators. It includes projects to renew or replace mains in conjunction with projects being done by other city agencies or the state. 
The utility is estimated to replace approximately 100,000 feet of main and approximately 2,000 services in FY24. Water distribution, transmission, and utility improvements total over 212.3 million in the five-year CIP. Projects include installing water mains to serve new customers and meter programs to improve existing mains and services, constructing water transmission mains and tanks to serve Richmond, Henrico, Chesterfield, and Hanover, funded 100% by each county, lowering the cost of service for all customers of the water utility and maximizing use of the city's water for purification plant, as well as replacing systems to maintain compliance with water quality regulations. Wastewater treatment has over 89.3 million in the five-year CIP for the treatment plant uh, to upgrade equipment and our process control systems. These projects will improve the operational processes of the wastewater treatment plant. The plant services 62,000 customers in the city, in Rico, Northern Chesterfield, and Goochland counties. Funding also allows for the purchase of replacement vehicles and equipment used to provide services throughout the service territory. Stormwater utilities have 95.2 million in the five-year CIP to upgrade stormwater sewers and facilities, stormwater extensions, emergency replacements, and it also includes funding for replacement vehicles and equipment used to provide services throughout the service territory. It will rehabilitate or replace drainage structures, ditches, culverts throughout the city using green technology has proven to be a positive step towards the reduction of urban runoff into the city's rivers and streams. So to summarize, um, the 2024 CIP is supporting building a strong city and improving the quality of life for our residents. The proposed FY24 to 28 CIP will help us leverage federal, state, regional, and local funds for transportation projects, plan and execute needed capital maintenance, and funding complete new projects such as affordable housing, parks, and community centers to enhance quality of life and build a stronger city. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. Saunders. Um, we're going to go in the order that's presented before me here. Councillor Lambert, then Councillor Jordan. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, um, Lincoln, for this presentation. Um, just want to cut to the chase on um, slide, I, I believe it's number six. You all have 62.4 million includes public safety vehicles and equipment. Um, I spoke to some folks in fleet, and one of the concerns that I wanted to know, make sure we have some type of mechanism to check this, is that we have employees that do not live in the city of Richmond, and they're taking city vehicles out to where they live. Um, so you're talking employees that may be living in New Kent or way beyond city boundaries. Um my question is, is just do we have a way that we're tracking those employees who use city vehicles that do not live in the city? Um, because to my understanding, I thought if you're going to use a city vehicle, it should be used for city business. But when you are leaving city boundaries to go into areas that is not city business, that's wear and tear on our vehicles. Um, so I just wanted to point that out because that's a concern to me. It's that we're spending all this money on maintaining vehicles, but a lot of the um, wear and tear is coming from non-related city use. 
Councilmember, I appreciate the question. I'm not aware that we have any take-home policies that allow for a take-home vehicle for those who live outside the city. Okay. Um, we do have, um, you know, sometimes, and I've run into this before, folks are surprised to see a city of Richmond public utilities vehicle in the counties, but we serve the counties. And so many times they're out there providing maintenance and support. Um, if there are specific cases or individuals that we need to investigate, please do make sure that information gets to me so okay. we can look into it. But it is not our policy uh, that I'm aware of today that an employee has a take-home vehicle outside of the city. Okay, thank you for that. And um, I'll follow up because just like Ms. Trammell, I have folks that like to divulge some things that are going on. And lastly, I saw on the wastewater um, plant, I remember the tour that um, Director Bingham gave us, me, some of my colleagues on that, and I appreciate that. That was very helpful. Um, I thought we service waste, I mean, I guess stormwater or wastewater treatment to Hanover. Do we not service Hanover in that? It's, I see it says Henrico, Northern Chesterfield, and Goochland, but I thought Hanover was a part of that. We actually, I believe, provide water to them, but I don't believe we receive their stormwater. Okay. Is that correct? Well, that's or, Billy. Yeah, okay. our, our, I think our we just provide watershed water. would be that, but I do think we we pump water to Hanover as far as providing them clean drinking water. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification. Thank you, Ms. Jordan. Thank you. Staying on fleet, can we get an update on Green Fleet implementation? Thank you. Um, we absolutely can get an update on it. I don't have one on the top of my head, but I will get it for you. I should have anticipated that one. I know, you knew I was going to ask that question. So obviously I'm a proponent of Green Fleet. We have a Green Fleet plan. We have environmental goals. We have um, public, you know, public safety folks who are really suffering from increased risk to cancer, from the idling of their vehicles when they're out on service calls. Um, gasoline is increasingly expensive. Technology is caught up. So I would like to see like actual plan to be purchasing these in this budget. Thank you. I know that Chief Carter recently went to visit a electric fire truck. I know there's only a couple of handful of them mm -hmm. around in the country right now that are, are kind of test pilots. And so I know he went and visited one in Charlotte. Um, uh, and I do believe we're continuing to move forward with the greening of our fleet for police for um and and any new you know um kind of single uh, occupancy vehicles for for general city um but i will get you some more specifics and data to back that up um and and we'll we'll go from there okay that'd be great especially as we're putting in a lot of extra cip money here with facilities you know new fires two new fire stations new police you know office community center schools like we need to be putting that infrastructure in Thank you. In addition to solar on the roofs. Thanks. Completely great. Okay. And, 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 and colleagues, what, what I'm asking Chief of Staff to do is to kind of keep track of some of these questions so we don't have necessarily a session just for it versus as we're in session to add that on to have those discussion items take that. That way we're not bringing them back just for you know, an overarching conversation on any one particular item, but we can get our follow-ups asked. So just know that as we have um, our sessions listed out that we do have baked in, 
where we can do and get your questions answered uh, in a timely manner. And so just, Mr. Sons, I know you guys are prepared for that, but again, we're trying to do things a little bit differently. So as we bring that back, uh, that's great. We're going to go to Councilmember Lynch. Down to like six questions ahead in my head, so let me go back to the original one. Um, for the complete streets, really excited to see that in there. Um, how did you all make the decision um, to put these on the list above some of the other projects that we have in the queue? Like, how did you all make decisions on the complete streets? Because, I mean, not that these aren't meeting the goals of complete streets, but I noticed that most of these are infrastructure repair um, and not. Are you referring to the, the recently completed ones that I referenced? I am referring to. So when I go to your when I go to my CIP budget, and I'm looking at the breakout for ah. complete streets. I am looking at um, basically it looks like. Cherokee Road safety improvements. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. That's not one of them. Um, it looks like government road slope repair, Hay Road improvements, Old Street Phase 2, Chippenham Parkway to Hay Road, Highland Grove, Dove Street redevelopment. And I, I think those might not be complete streets projects, Councilman. I think those might be the ones where we have highway safe funding coming in through either smart scale or otherwise. Yeah, so that's the what complete streets would be go, different. Go bonds, yeah. Okay. Okay. That well that it sorry, it was confusing in this but so then we do not have so that would that was my original question was do we have a breakout of the projects under complete streets? I, I do know that's part of our intent in coming forward with public works additional information to kind of give you a breakdown of what the plan projects would be if this level of funding is is approved. Um but I don't think it's in your your budget book as um, a set set of proposed projects because, as you know, with this funding, they are, they're often you know hoping to squeeze more out of it than what we might be able to speak to at this point in the fiscal year. But um, we we can definitely give you kind of a list of the prioritization. Okay, that'd be helpful. And then um, to um, Councilmember Jordan's point with the 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 plan and getting it moved forward with the um, the green. Um, Help me out, Councilmember Jordan. Yes, great fleet. <laughs> you can tell I haven't had. I need my afternoon coffee. Um, do, are how do you all? I mean, getting from point A to point B on that. I mean, when you put, do you have to put out an RFP? I'm assuming you put out an RFP. How do you acquire fleet? Do you put out an RFP to a vendor for that, or how, what's the process for that? Or you just go and purchase at a government car lot or something? We, how does that work? I believe we do a requisition, um, but I think we're we are working with vendors to get you know best price and and see where fleets available. I think many of you know that getting fleet has been immensely challenging. It took months longer than we would have hoped for the police vehicles that were in last year's um, fleet plan to get to the city, and we are still waiting on many of them. And and you know now late in the fiscal year, finally getting to do the radio shop work to get them ready you know ready for the street as a, a patrol vehicle. Um, so I, I do think it's a balance and I think we have to look at and be able to provide information about what the lead time is on green, on electric vehicles, particularly the ones that we're looking at for police, where it is a little bit more urgent with their, their current fleet need, um, versus, you know, versus otherwise, but, um, could probably go on for a very long time about fleet, but, um, would love to be able to just give that as a more in-depth review. 
So my, my follow-up question is, I mean, my, okay, so thank you for explaining that process. So if it's an RFP process, I mean, could we, could we not just, I mean, let's just get to hybrid, right? I mean, electric vehicle, that's, you know, I understand the challenges there, but I mean, even if we can get to hybrid and say, all right, you get extra points in your RFP if you can offer us, you know, best and best and final offer on a hybrid vehicle. I think there's probably um, some of that that has been captured in past work. And again, I would love to have um, our team who is responsible for the, the requisition side of fleet to um, provide additional context at a future session. Ms. Jordan. Thank you, President Jones. Uh, while we have the complete streets up here, uh, it's wonderful that we're investing um, to this magnitude across the city. I see a lot of just grass strips and then trees, and I just worry about the maintenance, honestly. So I think anyone who hasn't been down to see the low line and how successful that has been with more natives and things that are no mow, um, I hope we have got a strategic plan for all of this additional new um, streetscape and greening that is both lower maintenance, lower water requiring, um, and more you know permeable surface. So do we have anything like that? So you know it's a real opportunity, particularly people coming through on the fall line to cross that that you know city boundary and see how invested we are in being a green city and um, without overtaxing our, our maintenance staff. Thanks. Uh, I know that uh, Mr. Vincent and I had a, a good conversation with some of our partners in the space like Capital Trees and, and looking to tap into some of their expertise and recommendations as part of our um, urban forestry planning. And, and I do think that connects into the, the broader maintenance for medians, uh, right of ways, et cetera. And so I think there's um, more work to be done, but I think with some of the expertise we're adding to the city team, uh, we'll be able to have a lot more robust analysis and, and recommendations so we don't have to continue with the same sort of um, plantings or, or maintenance that we've had historically and can look at ways that are add to sustainability. If, if, if I could, if all my colleagues are done, I'll, I'll go ahead and ask a couple questions. All right, uh, Ms. Thomas, and again, let me let me thank you for uh, for your work here, and we appreciate uh, the the thoroughness of this information. Look forward to receiving specific questions that individual members may have, uh, so the body can be edified. FY twenty four to twenty eight, CIP provides fifty million in funding for affordable housing uh, projects throughout the city additional funding for the down payment program uh, for first-time home buyers is being really proposed is going to be paid with ARPA dollars correct we, we are proposing the mayor plans to propose a budget amendment that would move the 1.4 million in the COVID contingency that was set administration COVID contingency to this program since the emergency declaration is is um, coming to an end it seems like an appropriate time to go ahead and repurpose that that funds to a, a benefit of our employees. Do we know the amount? Are you able to share the amount? It's uh, 1.4 million, but we have not designed the program specifics to see what the individual uh, alloc with the cap on that individual allocation would be for for assistance. But give us a little bit of time. It was a 
later addition in our in our budget consideration and um, we need to design both the tuition assistance and the um, first-time home buyer program parameters and, and look to bring that forward shortly. Thank you. And as we look to have a discussion on uh, really the, the, the future of affordable housing and what that what that means, and I, I really want to, I don't, I don't, hopefully we can get to some of that in this budget cycle, but definitely a land use issue. When you talk about a paper that was, I believe, written back in 2008, 2009, what's, you know, where are we going in the future? I think that's a great conversation for uh, GovOps, because again, we're being held kind of uh, responsible for that as a council. People are coming to us asking, you know, what are we going to do? When are the proposed plans expected for each year relating to the $10 million? When when can we expect a plan for what's going to take place? I will say it's something I think we would like to bring forward more discussion in the coming weeks um, with speaking to uh, key stakeholders and council members who've been leading in this space. Um, I would say at a high level that uh, the the difference in how these funds can be used from past, you know, limited funding from the general fund. ARPA was different, appeared in the middle there because there was much more federal um, restrictions on what we could do. But a dollar in this capital budget is really equivalent to a dollar in our, our general fund. How we choose to pay for that is really the choice we're making between the capital budget and the operating budget um, and how we afford to do it. So my hope and expectation is that the or my my understanding is that we'll be able to have the same sort of support for the types of programs that we have been investing in over the last many years to provide for a thousand or more new units of affordable housing to come online in the city uh, through each year's funding allocation. Um, it, I do think though there is opportunities again through enhanced leveraging and through uh, continuing to examine our strategies to make sure we're achieving the maximum impact. Um, and so there may be strategies that we've not considered in the past that we would want to consider going forward, but I would defer to um, our partners and experts in housing as to what those might be. I think what uh, the mayor challenged me with and that I challenged the team with is we need to provide $10 million for affordable housing. That's our commitment, and we're going to do it, and this accomplishes that. Thank you, sir. Uh, Councilmember Addison. Thank you, uh, Mr. President. Um, one of the things that I just wanted to ask about CIP-wise is, um, Virginia, I'm curious around what's available for bonding options, given um, the options provided for our CIP funding currently. And just wondering what kind of creative options that might be available as things could be available, money could be available, funds could be available as we grow in certain neighborhoods or as we grow and develop things of the master plan or support growth in certain neighborhoods through the plans for future high frequency transit down key corridors where those projects as they come along create opportunities for us to match investment with our own infrastructure and the reason why i say that is because i think looking at broad street and the sidewalks being improved today and over the last several months when it was installed and it started off back in 2018, 2019. I'm just wondering how we could better align those things together to match the investment as it's happening to support that walkability and access as we are growing. Because I think 
that was an incredible project. I think it showed a lot of opportunity for us. And as we look at future expansion, north, south, and other areas, I just know that sometimes bonding is going to be a way we have to look at certain revitalizing neighborhoods. And I just want to know what options were available. And I know we have things like impact and social bonds. We have things like a moral obligation bond where it's not necessarily revenue dependent, but it's a dependent future plan for that. Just curious what options could be available, could be explored and added to our funding we have here. Um, I think it would be a, a a great work session to talk about making sure we explore all opportunities and how the city could be a partner differently in some areas than we are with our general capital improvement plan. Um, I think it's important to note that um, when you look at, you know, whether you want to make it equivalent to, you know, um, one cent on a real estate um, tax today generates a little shy of $4 million in annual revenue, but it also creates north of 40 million in debt capacity. So every time we're part of the reason we were able to include as many of the investments that you're seeing here in complete streets, fire station 21, um, community centers and parks is is based in the debt capacity that has come from um, as the city is is growing and and increasing on the revenue side. Because um, we do have so much of our capital budget has been um, the plan, et cetera, for for some time. The commitment to schools facilities at $200 million for this year has been in our capital budget for the last four years. Um, and we're thrilled to be able to, to meet that plan. Um, but as we want to expand our plan, we need to continue to to expand our growth opportunities. All right, with uh, without seeing any further questions, we have one announcement from uh, Council Chief of Staff, and then we will adjourn. Jones. And so on March 20th will be our next council budget work session to which we will be receiving another um, presentation on becoming an employer of choice from the administration. But in addition to that, our staff will be prepared to come back with some immediate questions um, and an analysis of what we found thus far. All right, thank you. Uh, with that, colleagues, we have, uh, we're going to reconvene at four o'clock for our informal session along with our closed meeting. Thank you each and every one of you for your input.